Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. We are invited to gather, go, give, and grow together by the power of His Spirit. Today we feature the first in a two-part Theology Night series on Our Resurrection Hope. Hosted by Redemption Church Pastor Dr. Scott Osborne, this recording was originally an interactive Facebook Live broadcast from Spring 2020. Hey, RC. Welcome to uh, our virtual Theology Night here. I am coming to you live, really live this time. It's our first live video together, and uh, we are coming to you from my office. I don't know about you, but the last few weeks, uh, last month or so with uh, Corona going around, and I don't know about you, but I've been thinking a lot about my own fragility. What if I get it? Am I going to be the one because I have asthma who is at risk? Um, can my body handle it? I've been dealing with my own fragility and even thinking my own mortality and thinking of the number of people that are experiencing sickness and disease and pain. And uh, for me, it just kind of made me stop and think, which I don't often do, about my mortality. And in light of that, what it's made me do in thinking through resurrection, <clears throat> thinking through Easter, is to see that the church has a unique hope. It has a very distinct hope. And that hope is resurrection. And I just feel like as, as a church in America, our understanding of resurrection is very weak. It is often misinformed. It's misguided. I don't want to say that it's anti-Christian, but I just say it's maybe sub-Christian, sub-biblical, a little less than what it should be. And as we'll see tonight, it doesn't go as far as it should actually go. The Christian hope for life after death presents unique vision, a vision that's unlike any other. The classical Christian faith understands God's final destiny for his image bearers to be the resurrection of the body. However, as I mentioned, much of contemporary thinking about the Christian doctrine of resurrection is deficient. Namely, something to the effect that resurrection is something that Jesus experienced so that people can have eternal life in heaven. Or as we'll dig into in a little bit later, we will see that what resurrection is for most people is just life after death. What happens after I die? I experience some sort of resurrection. And we're going to see today that there is actually two stages after we die. There is life after death, and then there's going to be what we call life after life after death, which that is resurrection. And so the final hope for the Christian faith is that all of our bodies will undergo the same transformation that Jesus' body did so that we will be like him. And as we come to this study, we're going to also see this fact, that the way that you understand the future directly impacts the way that you live in the present. <clears throat> so, if you're an atheist and you don't believe there's anything after you die, guess how you live this life? You live it up to the fullest. You live it up to the most. You do as much as you can. But if you have a different experience, a different understanding, of the Christian of life after death, let's say the Christian hope, 
then it actually motivates you to live a little bit differently, to have different affections and to be chasing after different things. And so we, as Christians, have unique hope that directly impacts and influences the way that we live today. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter, he ends it with so much theology, with so much interesting statements. He says this at the end of that great resurrection chapter, for as much as you know that your labor, the stuff that you do, the work that you do with your hands, the everyday life that you live, you know that because of the resurrection, your labor is not in vain. I don't know how much more practical we could actually get. And so Paul wants us to have profitable labor, and because of the resurrection, we actually do. So we're going to do this tonight. We're going to begin walking through the Bible. We're going to just trace throughout Scripture different verses and different themes moving from the Old Testament into the New Testament of the Gospels, and if we have time tonight, get into uh, Paul and the New Testament writers and how they understood resurrection. And so that's all we're going to do is we're going to just look at um, passages. We're just going to take our Bible and start reading and start digging into certain passages and just work our way through the Old Testament. So the first uh, thing we want to look at in the Old Testament is what we're going to call creational purposes. In the beginning, God created male and female. He blessed them and gave dominion and rule over all the earth to them, including dominion over the animals. He gave them roles as priests, priestess, and as king and as queen over all of creation. And they were to actually expand the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth in order to prepare the earth for its creator. God, wanting to dwell with his people, wanting to share his love and his life with not just the Father, Son, and Spirit, but to overflow that love and that life to us, wanted to come and dwell with us. And so he created this world and created Adam and Eve to get this world ready for his arrival so that we could actually participate in the love and the life of God. And so the bodies that God gave Adam and Eve to actually perform this task in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, they were called good. And more than that, they were actually called very good. Throughout those opening first five days, after each day, the evening and the morning were the first day, and the second day and third day, and we see this repeated frame that it was good. On the sixth day, we have this emphasized good. It's very good. And I think not just because creation, in a sense, was finished that it was very good, but I also think because of the fact that on the sixth day, God made man. And so because of the very good, the image-bearing quality of humanity, God looked at his creation and said about humanity, these bodies, these people are very good. And yet, even though these bodies, these humans that were made by God, were called very good and perfect, I want you to know that I still think that they're incomplete. You don't have to agree with me on this. You know, as I always say, we can ask questions and dialogue about this, and you can think about it. But what I want to say is that I don't think that these bodies that God gave us in the beginning, especially with Adam and Eve, were everything that they were supposed to be. In fact, what I want to say is that they were still incomplete. There's actually more to come for Adam and Eve, that their bodies were not in the final state that they would always be in, can be seen in a number of different ways. But here's one that I would, a couple that I would actually point out to you. 
Number one, these bodies that God gave to Adam and Eve still had the ability to sin. The vision for the final state of our bodies demonstrates that they will never sin again, nor will they ever experience decay because of the effects of sin. So when we come to the very end of the story and we look at our bodies, we're going to actually see that the bodies that we possess will never undergo decay again. They are incorruptible, Paul says. They have the inability to experience the part of the curse that was brought upon by Adam and Eve. And so the fact that Adam and Eve had bodies that could have sinned and still could experience the effects of sin implies that their bodies were not yet quite the final body that they were to always inhabit. Secondly, I would say this, they were naked. Oftentimes, nakedness in the opening uh, passage of Scripture there deals with their innocence. And I'm not going to say that it doesn't have anything to do with their innocence, but the, but the issue is simply this, is that we don't just look and see that they were naked and be like, oh, they were innocent, and now they sin, they realize we're naked, and this is why we hate to be naked. I think the idea of being naked points to something. It points to the need to be clothed. And you'll see in the New Testament, Paul is regularly talking about the clothes that we are supposed to be wearing. The clothes, if you look in Colossians chapter 3, of kindness and patience and gentleness, the fruits of the Spirit. And then he says the very last piece of garment, the very last piece of clothing that we actually are to put on is the garment of love. Or you see in the writer's New Testament with John, especially in the Revelation, when we come back, we are actually in robes, white robes. The point is that we were always supposed to have clothing. There was always more to come. Sure, we were innocent, but the innocents had the ability to experience decay and disease and corruption, which one day we will be clothed and that innocence will be gone. Three, not only, well, to repeat, one and two, they had the ability to sin, they were naked, but also in the beginning of the garden, you see that they were able, they're supposed to experience rest or Sabbath. That Adam was supposed to experience Sabbath rest is seen in the last day, the last day God rested. And what he wants humanity to do is to actually live in that Sabbath rest. Yet, if Adam... <clears throat> or Eve, or you and I, if this had never happened, could have sinned at any point, how could we ever experience true rest? If Adam at any moment sinned and thrust himself in humanity into an incorruptible state, how could he have ever experienced or gained the Sabbath? And so, what I think we're looking at here in the very beginning is just this concept that there was always something more to be done with the body than what was given at the beginning. And I think we're going to eventually come to see that what we all needed was what we will call resurrection, that we needed glorification, or that we needed transformation of our bodies. So the beginning, the Old Testament begins with this concept that our bodies are good. They are made by God. They are not evil. And when sin happens, it doesn't make the body evil. In fact, what we see is that the body is always good. The physical is always part of God's design. Yet, these bodies are made to have an experience more than what was in the garden. So they point to something more. The perfect bodies, the consummated, completed bodies, the incorruptible bodies that the New Testament depicts is what we were always supposed to experience.
the resurrection and the transformation of our bodies. Now, that's how the new yeah, the idea of uh, resurrection begins in Scripture. And interestingly, there is very few passages in the Old Testament that speak about re resurrection. And so, you and me, as we think through resurrection, we're just going to deal with three or four primary texts in the Old Testament that speak about resurrection. The first one we're going to look at is in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, and in verses 2 and 3, we have our first passage that we're going to deal with. This is probably the most prominent passage that influenced Jesus and the New Testament writers about resurrection. And Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over all of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people will be delivered, everyone whose name will be found in the book of life. So before we go to verse 3 and look at the topic of resurrection, setting the context here, if you're familiar with Daniel chapter uh, 10 through 12, it's, it's a picture of God's people continually being persecuted continually being um, maligned by these outside powers, these outside nations. And you also get a picture that there is these hidden forces that are at work, that are empowering and, in a sense, influencing these four nations to persecute Israel. And so this is why in Daniel chapter 12 you get the archangel, as we've come to know him, as Michael, this spiritual prince, this angelic mighty angel that God has in charge of his people. And there's going to come a time where this persecution is going to be so great that it's never happened before. And they're going to be delivered, all those who are written in the book of life. Verse 3, and it says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the ends. There's a couple things we want to just take note of in this passage. And the first one is simply this. There's a contrast between sleep and awake. It's this concept that those who are sleeping will be transformed and become awake. Now, sleep in the Old Testament is a nearly universal term held to believe just this concept of death. That death is another imagery for sleeping. Sleeping is a common depiction of sleeping in the dust of the earth. And it doesn't have necessarily the context that when you die, as we'll see, that we actually are sleeping in an unconscious and not know what's going on, but we are sleeping in the dust of the earth. So being awakened, becoming alive after sleeping, indicates a return to what life was like when we were alive before we slept. So being awake in a sense, is a recovery of what was lost when we went to sleep. And what we see in that, first of all and foremost, is this, is that we need to understand that resurrection, according to Daniel chapter 12, 
is a physical understanding. There is a awakening of the body, not just awakening of the soul, not just awakening of the spirit, but awakening of the whole body that is part of this resurrection. This physical resurrection continues with the statement of everlasting life. This, those who are awakened will experience everlasting life. And again, because of the cultural glasses that you and I read this phrase through, when we hear the phrase eternal life, I wish we could dialogue with each other right now, but when you hear the phrase you have eternal life, what do you immediately think of? And I would say probably something to the effect of, hey, I don't have to go to hell. That's eternal life. I get to go be with God. Eternal life. I get to go to heaven. Eternal life. But again, this passage, I think, highlights a little bit some, something a little bit different. When you're awakened from the sleep with your physical body, you're going to be giving, given life that does not end. It is a physical life. It is the resurrection of the body from sleep to be awakened to experience physical life. This physical resurrection experiences physical life but then it says this those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens now i've been to uh, a couple we'll just say it that way a couple places in my life where the phrase those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and so there's this uh, common push to be wise Christians, to understand the ways of God, to you know, read the book of Proverbs and be wise. And when we are wise, we will you know, be the bright lights of heaven. Now, I, I'm all for that. Be as wise as you can. Read the book of Proverbs and you know, dig into the ways that God has made the world and live according to those ways. That's what wisdom is. And I believe the book of Proverbs is given to the church to the people of Israel so they would actually be able to show the world how to live according to God's wisdom, according to God's ways. But I don't think that's what this promise is. I don't think he just is like talking about everlasting life and physical resurrection then he's like, hey, you know what? Be wise and then you'll be bright. No, I think there's something more going on. The wise will shine like the stars, does not depict, as I said, just being bright lights in the world for God. It's not just being a wise person rather than a foolish one. The imagery in the Old Testament of shining like stars has royal connotations. What does that mean? It is spoken of as of kings. Kings are spoken of as stars and celestial beings. God-given kings and rulers are to provide light to the world as stars in the firmament were made to give light to the earth. Those who are awakened will be awakened with physical eternal bodies with the vocation of ruling over the earth. They will be set in authority over the world. So if we could understand that phrase a little better when it says they will shine like the brightness of the heavens, it is talking about the return of the vocation of God's people, the vocation of humanity to rule over the earth. Those people who experience physical resurrection are going to experience, Revelation 21 says, they're going to rule over the earth again. They're going to actually experience the, and be what God has called them to be, what they've always wanted to be. So they'll be set in authority over the world. And this, under, this awakening underscores what I want to call escalation. 
When those who are awakened come to life, they will not return to life as it was, but return to life as it always should have been. What I mean by that is that when we return, sorry, when we come back and are experiencing physical resurrection, we're going to actually experience the rule over the earth that we were always supposed to have. Adam was supposed to rule over the earth and he lost it. And yet now, through resurrection, we can come back to what we were supposed to be. So, Daniel chapter 12 is probably the most famous, most influential passage in um, the Old Testament that influences New Testament authors, New Testament writers. And we want to, again, just highlight a couple things. It's in the context of spiritual authority, who's ruling the world. It's in the context of physical life. It's in the context of what you went to sleep in is what you'll be awakened to. It's in the context of eternal life, that this life will never end again. And it's in the context of returning back to our vocation of having authority over the world. And we will be like the stars who shine forever and ever. That's Daniel chapter 12. So, a second passage before I jump into that. Feel free, please, on your uh, Facebook page there, just to type any questions you got on um, Daniel chapter 12. Any questions you have from that particular passage. And we can deal with that. But we're going to jump into uh, our next passage here in Isaiah chapter 26. A passage that Daniel um, was probably influenced by is a passage from Isaiah chapter 26 that says this, But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. This passage, as I mentioned, stands behind Daniel chapter 12 and probably influences the way Daniel thinks and speaks of resurrection. Now, the broader context in Isaiah chapters 24 to 27 depict a time of national crisis uh, for the nation of Israel. And in the midst of this national crisis for the nation of Israel, there's also what we're going to call cosmic judgment upon the earth. So, the people of Israel are experiencing great persecution, and God is bringing judgment upon all the nations who are persecuting God's people. And through all of this, there's a promise in Isaiah 24-27 that God is actually going to rescue His people. And this rescue in Isaiah chapter 26 is pictured in the form of resurrection, of coming back to life. When there's all this cosmic upheaval and the world is going crazy and there's judgments and all these things are happening and you're being persecuted by all these people, know that God's going to save you, Israel. And the way He's going to save you is He's going to make your dead live. Their bodies will rise. This rescue is offered in the form of resurrection, as I mentioned, of coming back to life. And what I think this is important for us is, is that this hope for them was actually future hope. God didn't say, I'm going to rescue you in the immediate. He's actually saying, in the midst of all of this cosmic upheaval and persecution you're facing, there's coming a day, Israel, when my faithful ones will experience resurrection. I'm going to raise their bodies. And so I think that gives us hope a little bit in our day, is that our final hope, our ultimate hope, is not that God is going to meet us right here today. He might. 
But our final ultimate hope is that God will meet us in the last day, and He will let our dead bodies live. This is almost, in Isaiah chapter 26, like a prayer of the righteous to be given their lives back. The prayer of those who live again is directed in Isaiah chapter 26, a few verses earlier, that says this, O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. See, the author here in Isaiah is making a prayer and a plea to God. All these foreign rulers are over us, but we give your name only honor. And these are the people, those who seek God in the time of great distress, are going to be the people who experience this dead bodies coming back to life. But notice something. There's pain involved in this. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout with joy, for your dew is like the dew of the morning, and the earth will give birth to her dead. My wife and I had four kids, and uh, she only had um, medicine, an epidural on the first one, and that was after 16 hours of labor, she finally did it. All the other kids after that, the second, third, and fourth, she all did naturally. And every time after we got done, I said, Shelly, why won't you just take medicine? And she gave me all these reasons, and I was just being selfish, because I was like, it is so hard to see how much pain you're in. Like, God gave us medicine, you can use it, it'll be great. You'll feel comfortable, I'll feel comfortable, and I'd bring back the time when Maddie was born, and after 16 hours of labor, she got the epidural. We slept for two hours. It was like the, it was like this crazy, and we just fell asleep, woke up, had Maddie, and life was great. And I was like, let's just keep doing that. And she was like, no, we're not doing that. And so I got to see my wife go through childbirth with basically no medicine every time. And one thing I've noticed is that if there are deep pains that associated with childbirth. And when the new birth comes, for us, when the earth gives birth to her dead, when this new birth comes, it's going to be the new birth that the dead themselves will come. And there's going to be great pain in it. I'm almost reminded of in Acts when Paul and Barnabas say it's through many trials and tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of God. That those who look to God, in Isaiah 26, 13, who have no other gods, who only honor the name of Yahweh, these are the people who are going to experience great pains. And that might be pains of martyrdom, pains of death, pains of not being healed from diseases. And yet, it says this, the earth will give birth to her dead. The book of Isaiah continues to say this, they are now dead. They don't live anymore. For the evil ones, you punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. See, those who don't honor the name of God, the name of Yahweh, who don't honor the name of Jesus, will actually experience the exact opposite. They're going to be punished and brought to great ruin, and no one will remember their names anymore. So Isaiah 26.19 is giving us a picture again that God is going to do this resurrection work. He's actually going to bring dead people out of the earth through great pains so they can experience eternal life. And yet there's going to be people who don't bow the knee, who will not experience this resurrection, and they'll be brought to great ruin.
In the previous chapter, Isaiah chapter 25, there's this famous passage on the eschatological banquet, the future banquet of God's people. And let me just encourage us with phrases and imagery and passage of Scripture that you might be familiar with. But this is what awaits all of those who will experience resurrection. Isaiah chapter 25 says this, On the mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces, and He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. See, this final hope for the resurrection, the people who through the pain of childbirth give birth to new life of new birth, are people who are actually going to experience Jesus preparing a banquet for us. A banquet that is in a sense is like Napa Valley and Ruth Chris combined. It is the best wines, it is the best steaks, it's the best meats. And not only is it just going to be the best of the physicality, but the second part goes on to speak of the best of, of like the inner man, that there's going to be no more shame, there's going to be no more nations that are covered up by the sheet of evil and the power of death because it's going to be swallowed up forever. And the Lord's going to wipe away all these tears from us. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more need for tears. And your disgrace, your shame, your guilt will be removed. So what we're seeing in the Old Testament is this, is that God always wanted His people to experience more than what Adam and Eve had. But because of their sin and their rebellion, they could never actually accomplish it. In fact, they took a step backwards in it. And yet we see now in Daniel chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 26 that there is this promise, this hope, that one day God's people would actually experience the life, the body, that they were always told they would have. Two more passages in the Old Testament that are important for us, and these are going to be much quicker, are in Ezekiel chapter 37, and it's going to be the first one, and I'm not going to read this entire chapter to you tonight, but it's the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, and it's a very powerful passage about the nation of Israel being dead, having all their bones, their body decayed, they're really dead, they're so dead, they've been dead a long time, that there's just all these bones in this valley. And it speaks that one day God's breath, God's spirit, is going to come upon these bones, and He's going to bring life in a place that there was death. The surrounding context of Israel, I'm sorry, of Ezekiel, for instance, in the previous two chapters and moving to the end of the book, is the surrounding context is the restoration of Israel. The restoration of the lands. That it's no longer going to be plundered by foreigners. It's actually going to yield its fruits. There's a restoration of the buildings. The, how, the houses, the homes will be rebuilt. The city um, centers will be rebuilt. The agriculture will be reestablished. 
And so as you read through this particular section of Ezekiel, there's this promise of restoration through the nation, and that restoration is primarily going to come through David. So what you read in Ezekiel chapter 36 is that God is actually going to raise up David and put him on the throne and lead God's people in righteousness. I actually think that that is actually going to reference Jesus. He is the Davidic heir who is going to sit on the throne and lead God's people in righteousness. But regardless of who it is, there is coming a king who is going to restore Israel. And the final chapters of Ezekiel speak about a new temple that will be built. And yet, the other theme that is common in the book of Ezekiel throughout is that the reason that this restoration has not taken place is because of the impurity, the uncleanness, and the idolatry of the people. And so the vision of the dry bones comes at a place in the book and near this section to highlight that God is actually going to visit his people. He's going to take away their impurities. He's going to take away their backslidings. He's going to deal with their sins. He's going to atone for their sins, Ezekiel chapter 36 says. And when he does that, he's going to come and breathe life into his people. And these people are going to undergo as a nation resurrection. They're going to experience new birth, new life. Life that was dead is now being awakened and is coming to life. So Ezekiel 37 is another passage that speaks about the nation of Israel, the people of God, coming to experience resurrection. And probably, I'm going to deal with one more Old Testament passage, probably the one passage uh, that you are not familiar with, maybe these three you've heard of, is in Hosea chapter 13, because who reads Hosea? Let's just be honest, okay? If you have, I'll give you a dollar in the last three years. Hosea chapter 13, just put it on the Facebook um, Lauren, you put an angry face? What did I say? Something mean? Just kidding. I just want to call you out because you probably don't like that. Hosea chapter 13, verse 14 says this. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And then notice these questions. Where, O death, are your plagues? And where, O grave, is your destruction? Hopefully you're already putting together some New Testament passages from this Old Testament passage. And so we come here and there's this promise again that, you know what? The plagues that destroy God's people and the pestilences and destructions that come and destroy and, and kill the people of God. God is actually saying, I'm going to rescue these people from death. And that death, that rescue that's coming, is life. It is resurrection life. So these are maybe one or two others, but primarily the Old Testament references that we deal with in the Old Testament. Daniel 12, Isaiah 26, Ezekiel 37, and Hosea chapter 13. Though the Old Testament, as I mentioned, does not speak about resurrection at length, it does speak to it. And some of these themes that we've talked about, we've already given more content to and understanding to because of the New Testament. But as we continue to go through this progressively revealed doctrine of resurrection, we're going to see things become more and more clear of how God is actually going to bring resurrection to His people. The Old Testament Jews were aware of life after death. They just weren't aware how it would take place. In the New Testament, we're given more of a timeline of how that will actually take place. 
But again, I think it's important that we understand that the Old Testament Jews had an understanding and expectation of what life would look like after death. And that was a physical resurrection from the dead and a restoration to their role of ruling over the earth. Now we come to Jesus in the Gospels. And uh, I'm going to do two things with us under this Jesus in the Gospel piece. Number one, we're going to look at some of the uh, cultural understandings of life after death, of um, post-mortem life, in the Greek world, because that was heavily influencing Jesus' day. And we're going to look at a couple different um, views of the Jewish people in their days, because I think we, in a sense, also have all of these ideas about resurrection. So, one thing we should note right away is that there's not one singular Greek view of the afterlife. If you're familiar at all with philosophy, you know there's 452... It's a joke. I don't know how many philosophers. Ask Luke. He'll tell you. But there's lots of philosophers, and there's probably as many views on the afterlife as there are philosophers. But here are some of the main ones. Um, Homer, uh, the Homerian group of Greek philosophy, believed that the afterlife was a disembodied existence doomed to roam the underworld Hades. So again, if you haven't yet, you should maybe check out the books. Oh my goodness, I just lost the books. Piercy Jackson. Um, I, uh, no, someone help me. You can't help me. Someone type it. You should check out the Piercy Jackson books about these Greek gods. And you actually visit in the first book, Hades, in the underworld. And you see that these are where we according to Homer, are to be doomed to the afterlife. So if that's your view of the afterlife, how many of you are excited to go die? I mean, no one in a sense is excited to die, but if that's your afterlife, you definitely are not looking forward to the afterlife. So there's a negative view. Then there's what we'd call an Epicurean view, or the Epicurious belief, is that the body was made up of just a bunch of different tiny particles, and then when death occurred, all those different particles disintegrated and disappeared. For them, there was no existence of life after death. Death was welcomed, but not with the hope of eternal life. So, again, this is almost like the atheistic worldview of our day, of the view that when we die, nothing happens to us, we don't go anywhere, we just cease to exist. And so death was welcomed, it wasn't a big deal, but there is no hope held out for the future. Then there was the Platonists, or the Pla people who followed Plato. And uh, these individuals believe the soul was good and the body was evil. Upon death, the soul would actually be liberated and free from the bondage of a material body, and the body, in a sense, would be doomed to Hades, and then the material, the, oh, sorry, the immaterial, the spirit and the soul, would actually go on to experience bliss and joy. And what you see here is what I want to call, I think, this Platonist understanding of body and of the soul has desperately impacted the church. Such that we believe that when we die, we leave this God-forsaken earth and go live forever in heaven. This earth is just going to be burned, so let's just go live in heaven forever. This birth, sorry, this birth, yeah, we need a new birth. This earth is actually evil 
And the only thing you can take when you die to heaven is other people. So the only thing that matters is spiritual things because this earth is secondary at best and evil at worst. And so we just, in a sense, make this dichotomy, this distinction between the spirit and the soul and physical. And I just want you to know that's like a Greek <laughs> Platonist philosophy that is still plaguing the church today. And so you can even see how what I want to call secular cultural views are impacting the way that the church understands the afterlife right here, even going back 2,000 years ago. And so these views were impacting the days of Jesus, but the lightning thief, thank you, Piercy Jackson limping. There we go, Kirsten, thank you. Yes, I knew. I thought Sebastian would jump in and tell me that too. Um, but definitely worth your time. Those books are pretty good, actually. So, these cultural Greek views are impacting the Jewish world. However, there is also some Jewish diversity in how they understood the afterlife. Now, there's going to be no pastoral jokes about the Sadducees, okay? If you know that joke, just leave it alone. Okay, but the Sadducees were a sect, a, a group in the Jewish world that denied the resurrection. They didn't believe in it. These people, the Sadducees, were the powerful, the elite, the aristocratic, the bourgeois people, the bougie people. They were the rich, they enjoyed power, they enjoyed wealth, they had prestige within the Jewish society. And so they denied the resurrection, and of any future life, it was argued, and they did it based on this fact, you know, like you ask, I ask the question, well, how could they deny like Daniel 12 and Ezekiel 37 and these passages we looked at, how could they deny them? Well, if you're familiar with the Sadducees, they only, in a sense, they privileged the first five books of the Bible. And since there is no explicit doctrine of resurrection in the first five books of the Bible, they actually got rid of it. They didn't believe in it. They thought it was a secondary doctrine at best. They thought it was a newfangled doctrine, a newfangled belief that was invented by late prophets because you couldn't find it in the books of Moses. Now, the Pharisees were another sect, and uh, the church, our church, bets on the Pharisees a lot, but they had something in common with Jesus. Jesus and the Pharisees argued and were in favor of a future and held out hope for resurrection. Now, these three parties, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Jesus, and the Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, these three people actually all have a conversation in the Gospels. And uh, I want to look at that conversation with you. It's in Luke chapter 20. We have a conversation where there are Pharisees nearby, teachers of the law nearby, who then are accompanied by the Sadducees, and they're asking Jesus a question. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Let me get my Bible here. Where are we at? It says this, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third occur. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. 
Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven, for the, wait, wait, for the seven had her as a wife. The seventh one had her as a wife. There's my ESV coming through right there. Oh, Lauren, you got to write it quicker. Save me some time. Just kidding. But here in chapter 20, there's a promise, sorry, a, a quote, a question by the Sadducees to Jesus. And they ask the question, who is going to be the wife to this woman in the resurrection? Which is funny because they don't even believe in the resurrection. You can tell right away they're trying to trick Jesus. They pose this question to Jesus, basically saying if a husband dies, leaving his wife childless, and this happens seven times, then whose husband will she be in the resurrection? Aren't you thankful if you have brothers that you don't live according to the Levi-right marriage laws anymore as it says when your husband dies childless, you have to marry her and raise up a child? It'd be kind of weird marrying your sister-in-law and having to marry her and raise up children for her. And notice... They quote Moses, since for them the Pentateuch was authoritative, and there are seemingly no resurrection passages in the first five books of the Bible. It says, that why I, mean, why I say that's interesting, is that where do they go to get this question to trick Jesus about the resurrection? They go to the place where they privilege, the privileged first five books of the Bible, to talk about a doctrine they don't believe in. Now, I want you to know this is not just some abstract question. They didn't come to Jesus and just be like, hey, we're trying to trick you. And if they tricked him, be like, ha we tricked him. No, there's something more than just some random question. It actually had to do with the very existence and life of the Sadducees. See, the doctrine of the resurrection, according to the Pharisees and according to the Old Testament, is simply this, is that when God came and brought resurrection to the world, to his people, he would come and overturn all the very powers and all the rulers of this world and turn everything upside down so that the, the last will become the greatest. And the, sorry, the last will become first and the, and the least will become the greatest. And right now in this world, in the Jewish world, who are the people who are first and who are the greatest? They're the Sadducees. And the doctrine of resurrection says that when God comes and visits his people and brings resurrection, he's going to bring everything upside down. So these people are actually going to lose their standing and their place in this world. See, the reason they didn't believe in the doctrine of resurrection is because it threatens the very existence and the way of their very life. Which, this is like a side note, but I want you to hear this out. Our theological commitments that you and I believe are often determined way beforehand by our life commitments. Please understand that. That it happens to me, it happens to you, that the way you interpret Scripture and the commitments that you hold theologically oftentimes are viewed at, influenced by your pre-existing life commitments. So that you want to hold on to something, you believe a certain doctrine. You want to hold on to your money, you believe this doctrine. You want to hold on to your power and your wealth, like the Sadducees, you deny resurrection. And we could do this in many areas of our life. I don't want to touch on too many of these topics. But I feel like this is the problem with politics in the Christian world. Is that we view our theological commitments from our already existing political commitments, rather than having the kingdom politic influence everything else. And I know it's 
a thing we're all working on, trying to figure out how to make the kingdom politic the primary that influences all else. But just know this, that the Sadducees didn't just come up with a random question about resurrection. No, they were actually trying to hold on to the very life that they had, rather than give up their whole life for the sake of the kingdom. So, that's their question. And before they can even get an answer, Jesus begins to address them. And Jesus, I think, because he's Jesus and he's so wise, and we can look at what he does, we can see his wisdom. Notice what he says. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush. Let me just stop and address this idea about angels. What Jesus does here is he begins to answer the question being like, okay, you want to know whose wife is going to be in the resurrection? Well, know this. She's going to be no one's wife because there is no marriage. So your question has a mute point. Like your question, you're trying to trick me, you're trying to preserve your way of life, actually is a very invalid question because in the resurrection, there is no more marriage. Why? There's no more purpose for marriage. It says we'll be like the angels. Now again, we read that and we think of physicality, material. We're going to be like the angels. We're going to have spirit beings in the resurrection. And that is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, what Jesus is saying is that we're going to be like the angels in that one. We don't procreate, and we're going to be the angels in that two. Not just that we're not going to procreate, but that we're going to live forever. Just as an angel cannot die, when we experience resurrection, we will not die. And so Jesus invalidates their question to begin with, and then begins to say that in the resurrection, we're going to actually have bodies that are not for the purpose of procreating, so marriage is no longer needed, and we're going to have bodies that are eternal like the angels. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He then goes, okay, now you want to only believe in the first five books of the Bible, and you don't think it talks about resurrection there, so you don't believe in it. Jesus then on to say, well, let's talk about this burning bush. He says, in the passage about the bush, where Moses calls the Lord God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God not of the dead, but of the living. Now, you have to think a little bit maybe on this one. However, the thinking is well worth it. Here's what Jesus is saying. God, if he's a God of living, means that he is in presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead and there is no resurrection, then God is no longer the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is his point, is that God can't just be the God of dead people. He is the God of the living. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are experiencing resurrection, will be experiencing resurrection. And so this is what the point is, is that God is the God living. There is resurrection. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will experience resurrection. So Jesus can even go to their text 
and begin to make an argument that depicts that they are going to experience resurrection life. So here we have in Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40, an interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees, people who did not believe in the resurrection. But there's also another passage that we're going to look at in the Gospels, and that is found in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, it's a story of Lazarus, and I'm, I'm hoping, in a sense, that most of you are familiar with the story of Lazarus, uh, his sisters, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus gets sick and dies, and it takes Jesus four days to get to Bethany to be with them, and Martha says in chapter 11, verse 21, says to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I now know that even God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection life, and the one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha says, Yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is come into the world. Steve, I do see your question, and I will come to that in just a minute. Let's finish up here with John chapter 11. One of the things I find interesting in this passage is that Martha already has an understanding of resurrection. She says, I know that you will raise Lazarus at the resurrection on the last day. She has an understanding of Daniel chapter 12, of Ezekiel chapter 37, Isaiah 26, that one day God is going to take the very bones and the being of Lazarus and bring him back to life. And so Martha already holds this commitment that there is hope for resurrection, hope for physical life at the end. Jesus also says that I am the resurrection and the life. What Jesus is making very clear here is that he is the means by which resurrection life is going to be accomplished. He is, in a sense, the essence of it. And because, as we'll see in the book of 1 Corinthians, that because He is the first fruits and we belong to Him, His life will become our life. His resurrection will be our resurrection. We will share in His resurrection life. And this is what Jesus is making clear to Martha. Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the one who is going to raise up Lazarus and you on that last day. But what's interesting in this passage is this, is that passage shows us that what Jesus did for Lazarus is not what he's going to do for Lazarus. What do I mean by that? Here's something that hit me a few years ago. Jesus is not the only person in the Bible who experienced resurrection. I mean, if you look throughout the Bible, Elijah raises the widow's son. Jesus raises Lazarus in this passage from the grave. Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. Paul raised a man named Eutychus from the dead. Raising people from the dead wasn't a common occurrence, but you see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the Gospels, you see it in the book of Acts. And the question I begin to ask myself, what is different about Elijah's resurrection and 
Peter's resurrection and Lazarus' resurrection. What are different about these people's resurrections than Jesus's resurrection? Because last I checked, we don't hold a feast or a holiday to celebrate Lazarus walking out of the grave, but we celebrate Jesus walking out of the grave. What made Jesus's resurrection so unique? See, what makes Jesus' resurrection so unique is that he, his body, his resurrection body, when he walked out of the grave, was that transformed, glorified, eternal, incorruptible body that was promised to all those people on the last day. What we see now is that in Jesus, that last day has been brought forward. The resurrection that was on the last day has been brought forward into human history so that right now there is resurrection life in Jesus. So God did for Jesus what He's going to do for all of us. He just did it ahead of time for Jesus. And Jesus is now the one through whom resurrection, eternal life will come. Before we move on, let me address some of these questions here. Steve said, uh, will our current relationships still be special to us in the resurrection, or will we just view everyone the same? Will we have memories with family? Well, this one I'm going to go off of, Steve, is that when Jesus walked out of the grave, and he started talking with Mary, and Mary didn't know who she was, he was well aware of who Mary was. He understood that he was speaking to someone he remembered three days ago before he was actually killed. So that when he came out of his grave with his brand new body, he still had the memories and a sense of who his friends were. He wanted to go find his disciples, so he told Mary to go gather all of them in Galilee so that he could be with them. So I think that the current relationships that we have will still be special to us. We still will be able to interact with our friends, our family. We will know them. The one thing about eternity is that with all of God's people, we'll become all of that to all those people. We'll be able to be friends and family in a sense to more than just the select few that we're able to know and that God so graciously gives us now, but we'll actually be able to experience that with everyone in the coming days. So I do think, you know, just being personal here, that when resurrection happens, when life after life after death comes, I will be able to know who Shelley is. In fact, I hope I get to go look for her and search for her. Um, we'll find out. But I do think there will be memories. I do think there will be special relationships um, that we have with our friends and our family, but the question. But I'm just going off again, um, the illustration of Jesus and his resurrection body. So I hope that is uh, somewhat helpful for you. All right, so it's eight o'clock. I need like a bunch of thumbs up. Should we just like stop here and look at Paul in the New Testament and uh, John next time? I think that's what I'm going to do. That's a good hour right there of you listening to me on virtual without any interaction that's like an hour of straight talking to me and um, I think what I'm gonna do is just stop right there for tonight and uh, next Monday night we're just gonna meet right back here again and uh, we're gonna finish this but I want to just finish our time
um, by thinking, once again, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. And uh, I wanted to get to this tonight, but I just wanted to remind us again that as we work this week, as we labor for Jesus, and I want you to know that's at your job, that's at your house, that is all the work that you put in for Jesus, that it is not in vain. So be steadfast, be immovable, always being ready to abound in God's work, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So I leave you that benediction, and uh, we'll maybe make some connections next week about how the resurrection actually impacts that, and how the resurrection that we experience today already gives us hope and promise that all the work we do is worth it. So abound in the work of Jesus this week because of the resurrection, because we have been raised with Christ, and we wait for the day when we'll experience our final resurrection. The next week we'll look at Paul, we'll look at several passages in the New Testament that depict our resurrection hope, and uh, feel free to go ahead and ask some questions uh, on this text thread right here, and I'll be able to address them next week as well. So Lord bless you guys, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.